0: Book I, Chapter 33 of Little Dorrit This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens Book I, Poverty Chapter 33, Mrs. Merdle's Complaint Resigning herself to inevitable fate by making the best of those people the Miggleses, and submitting her philosophy to the draft upon it, of which she had foreseen the likelihood in her interview with Arthur, Mrs. Gowan handsomely resolved not to oppose her son's marriage. In her progress to, and happy arrival at, this resolution, she was possibly influenced not only by her maternal affections, but by three politic considerations. Of these, the first may have been that her son had never signified the smallest intention to ask her consent, or any mistrust of his ability to dispense with it the second that the pension bestowed upon her by a grateful country and a barnacle would be freed from any little filial inroads when her henry should be married to the darling only child of a man in very easy circumstances the third that henry's debts must clearly be paid down upon the altar railing by his father-in-law when to these threefold points of prudence there is added the fact that Mrs. Gowan yielded her consent the moment she knew of Mr. Meagle's having yielded his, and that Mr. Meagle's objection to the marriage had been the sole obstacle in its way all along, it becomes the height of probability that the relict of the deceased Commissioner of Nothing Particular turned these ideas in her sagacious mind. Among her connections and acquaintances, however, she maintained her individual dignity, and the dignity of the blood of the barnacles— by diligently nursing the pretense that it was a most unfortunate business, and she was sadly cut up by it, that this was a perfect fascination under which Henry laboured, that she had opposed it for a long time, but what could a mother do, and the like? She had already called Arthur Clennam to bear witness to this fable, as a friend of the Meagles family, and she followed up the move by now impounding the family itself for the same purpose. In the first interview, she accorded to Mr. Meagles, she slided herself into the position of disconsolately, but gracefully yielding to irresistible pressure. With the utmost politeness and good breeding, she feigned that it was she, not he, who had made the difficulty, and who at length gave way, and that the sacrifice was hers, not his. The same feint, with the same polite dexterity, she foisted on Mrs. Meagles, as a conjurer might have forced a card on that innocent lady— and when her future daughter-in-law was presented to her by her son she said on embracing her my dear what have you done to henry that has bewitched him so at the same time allowing a few tears to carry before them in little pills the cosmetic powder on her nose as a delicate but touching signal that she suffered much inwardly for the show of composure with which she bore her misfortune among the friends of mrs gowan who piqued herself at once on being society, and on maintaining intimate and easy relations with that power, Mrs. Myrtle occupied a front row. True, the Hampton Court Bohemians, without exception, turned up their noses at Myrtle as an upstart, but they turned them down again, by falling flat on their faces to worship his wealth. In which compensating adjustment of their noses, they were pretty much like treasury, bar, and bishop, and all the rest of them to mrs merdle mrs gowan repaired on a visit of self-condolence after having given the gracious consent aforesaid she drove into town for the purpose in a one-horse carriage irreverently called at that period of english history a pill-box it belonged to a job-master in a small way who drove it himself and who jobbed it by the day or hour to most of the old ladies in hampton court palace but it was a point of ceremony in that encampment "'that the whole equipage should be tacitly regarded as the private property of the jobber "'for the time being, and that the jobmaster should betray personal knowledge of nobody "'but the jobber in possession. "'So the circumlocution barnacles, who were the largest jobmasters in the universe, "'always pretended to know of no other job but the job immediately in hand. "'Mrs. Merdle was at home.' and was in her nest of crimson and gold, with the parrot on a neighbouring stem, watching her with his head on one side, as if he took her for another splendid parrot of a larger species. To whom entered Mrs. Gowan, with her favourite green fan, which softened the light on the spots of bloom. "'My dear soul,' said Mrs. Gowan, tapping the back of her friend's hand with this fan, after a little indifferent conversation, "'you are my only comfort.' that affair of henry's that i told you of is to take place now how does it strike you i am dying to know because you represent and express society so well mrs merdle reviewed the bosom which society was accustomed to review and having ascertained that show-window of mr merdle's and the london jewellers to be in good order replied As to marriage, on the part of a man, my dear, society requires that he should retrieve his fortunes by marriage. Society requires that he should gain by marriage. Society requires that he should found a handsome establishment by marriage. Society does not see, otherwise, what he has to do with marriage. Bird, be quiet! for the parrot on his cage above them, presiding over the conference as if he were a judge, and, indeed, he looked rather like one, had wound up the exposition with a shriek. "'Cases there are,' said Mrs. Merdle, delicately crooking the little finger of her favourite hand, and making her remarks neater by that neat action, "'cases there are where a man is not young or elegant, and is rich, and has a handsome establishment already.' "'Those are of a different kind. "'In such cases—' "'Mrs. Merdle shrugged her snowy shoulders, "'and put her hand upon the jewel-stand, "'checking a little cough, as though to add, "'Why, a man looks out for this sort of thing, my dear. "'Then the parrot shrieked again, "'and she put up her glass to look at him, and said, "'Bird, do be quiet. "'But young men,' resumed Mrs. Merdle, and by young men (laughs) you know what i mean my love i mean people's sons who have the world before them they must place themselves in a better position towards society by marriage or society really will not have any patience with their making fools of themselves dreadfully worldly all this sounds said mrs leaning back in her nest and putting up her glass again does it not but it is true said mrs gowan with a highly moral air my dear it is not to be disputed for a moment returned mrs merdle because society has made up its mind on the subject and there is nothing more to be said if we were in a more primitive state if we lived under roofs of leaves and kept cows and sheep and creatures instead of bankers accounts which would be delicious my dear i am pastoral to a degree by nature well and good but we don't live under leaves and keep cows and sheep and creatures i perfectly exhaust myself sometimes in pointing out the distinction to edmund sparkler mrs gowan looking over her green fan when this young gentleman's name was mentioned replied as follows my love you know the wretched state of the country "'those unfortunate concessions of John Barnacles, "'and you therefore know the reason for my being as poor as thingamy.' "'A church-mouse,' Mrs. Merdle suggested with a smile. "'I was thinking of the other proverbial church-person, Job,' said Mrs. Gowan. "'Either will do. "'It would be idle to disguise, consequently, "'that there is a wide difference between the position of your son and mine.' "'I may add, too, that Henry has talent. "'Which Edmund certainly has not,' said Mrs. Merdle, with the greatest suavity. "'And that his talent, combined with disappointment,' Mrs. Gowan went on, "'has led him into a pursuit which—' "'Oh, dear me! You know, my dear, such being Henry's different position, "'the question is, what is the most inferior class of marriage?' "'to which I can reconcile myself.' "'Mrs. Merdle was so much engaged with the contemplation of her arms— "'beautiful formed arms, "'and the very thing for bracelets— "'that she omitted to reply for a while. "'Roused at length by the silence, "'she folded the arms, "'and with admirable presence of mind "'looked at her friend full in the face, "'and said interrogatively, "'Yes, and then?' "'And then, my dear?' "'said Mrs. Gowan, not quite so sweetly as before. "'I should be glad to hear what you have to say to it.' "'Here the parrot, who had been standing on one leg since he screamed last, "'burst into a fit of laughter, "'bobbed himself derisively up and down on both legs, "'and finished by standing on one leg again, "'and pausing for a reply, "'with his head as much awry as he could possibly twist it. "'Sounds mercenary to ask what the gentleman is to get with the lady.' "'said Mrs. Merdle. "'But society is perhaps a little mercenary, you know, my dear.' "'From what I can make out,' said Mrs. Gowan, "'I believe I may say that Henry will be relieved from debt.' "'Much in debt?' asked Mrs. Merdle, through her eye glass "'Why, tolerably, I should think,' said Mrs. Gowan. "'Meaning the usual thing, I understand just so.' Mrs. Merdle observed in a comfortable sort of way. And that the father will make them an allowance of three hundred a year, or perhaps altogether something more, which in Italy-Oh, going to Italy, said Mrs. Merdle, for Henry to study. You need be at no loss to guess why, my dear. That dreadful art. True, Mrs. Merdle hastened to spare the feelings of her afflicted friend. She understood. "'Say no more.' "'And that,' said Mrs. Gowan, shaking her despondent head, "'that's all—that,' repeated Mrs. Gowan, "'furling her green fan for the moment, and tapping her chin with it. "'It was on the way to being a double chin—might be called a chin and a half at present. "'That's all. "'On the death of the old people, I suppose there will be more to come, "'but how it may be restricted or locked up, I don't know.' and as to that, they may live for ever. My dear, they are just the kind of people to do it. Now, Mrs. Merdle, who really knew her friend Society pretty well, and who knew what Society's mothers were, and what Society's daughters were, and what Society's matrimonial market was, and how prices ruled in it, and what scheming and counter-scheming took place for the high buyers, and what bargaining and huckstering went on, thought in the depths of her capacious bosom that this was a sufficiently good catch. Knowing, however, what was expected of her, and perceiving the exact nature of the fiction to be nursed, she took it delicately in her arms, and put her required contribution of gloss upon it. "'And that is all, my dear,' said she, heaving a friendly sigh. "'Well, well,' the fault is not yours. You've nothing to reproach yourself with. You must exercise the strength of mind for which you are renowned, and make the best of it.' "'The girl's family have made,' said Mrs. Gowan, "'of course, the most strenuous endeavours to, as the lawyers say, to have and to hold Henry. Of course they have, my dear.' said mrs merdle i have persisted in every possible objection and have worried myself morning noon and night for means to detach henry from the connection no doubt you have my dear said mrs merdle and all of no use all has broken down beneath me now tell me my love am i justified in at last yielding my most reluctant consent to henry's marrying among people not in society or have i acted with inexcusable weakness in answer to this direct appeal mrs merdle assured mrs gowan speaking as a priestess of society that she was highly to be commended that she was much to be sympathized with that she had taken the highest of parts and come out of the furnace refined and mrs gowan who of course saw through her own threadbare blind perfectly and who knew that mrs merdle saw through it perfectly and who knew that society would see through it perfectly came out of this form notwithstanding as she had gone into it with immense complacency and gravity the conference was held at four or five o'clock in the afternoon when all the region of harley street cavendish square was resonant of carriage wheels and double knocks it had reached this point when mr merdle came home from his daily occupation of causing the british name to be more and more respected in all parts of the civilized globe capable of the appreciation of world-wide commercial enterprise and gigantic combinations of skill and capital for though nobody knew with the least precision what mr merdle's business was except that it was to coin money these were the terms in which everybody defined it on all ceremonious occasions and which it was the last new polite reading of the parable of the camel and the needle's-eye to accept without inquiry for a gentleman who had this splendid work cut out for him mr merdle looked a little common and rather as if in the course of his vast transactions he had accidentally made an interchange of heads with some inferior spirit he presented himself before the two ladies in the course of a dismal stroll through his mansion which had no apparent object but escape from the presence of the chief butler i beg your pardon he said stopping short in confusion i didn't know there was anybody here but the parrot however as mrs merdle said you can come in and as mrs gowan said she was just going and had already risen to take her leave he came in and stood looking out at a distant window, with his hands crossed under his uneasy coat-cuffs, clasping his wrists as if he were taking himself into custody. In this attitude he fell directly into a reverie from which he was only aroused, by his wife's calling to him from her ottoman, when they had been for some quarter of an hour alone. "'Eh?' "'Yes,' said Mr. Merdle, turning towards her. "'What is it?' "'What is it?' repeated Mrs. Merdle, "'It is, I suppose, that you have not heard a word of my complaint.' "'Your complaint, Mrs. Merdle,' said Mr. Merdle, "'I didn't know that you were suffering from a complaint.' "'What complaint?' "'A complaint of you,' said Mrs. Merdle. "'Oh, a complaint of me,' said Mr. Merdle. "'What is the—what have I—what may you have to complain of in me, Mrs. Merdle?' In his withdrawing, abstracted, pondering way, it took him some time to shape this question. As a kind of faint attempt to convince himself that he was the master of the house, he concluded by presenting his forefinger to the parrot, who expressed his opinion on the subject by instantly driving his bill into it. "'You were saying, Mrs. Myrtle,' said Mr. Myrtle, with his wounded finger in his mouth, "'that you had a complaint against me?' "'A complaint, which I could scarcely show the justice of, more emphatically, than by having to repeat it,' said Mrs. Merdle. "'I might as well have stated it to the wall. I'd far better have stated it to the bird. He would at least have screamed.' "'You don't want me to scream, Mrs. Merdle, I suppose?' said Mr. Merdle, taking a chair. "'Indeed. I don't know.' retorted Mrs. Merdle, but that you had better do that than be so moody and distraught, one would at least know that you were sensible of what was going on around you. A man might scream, and yet not be that, Mrs. Merdle, said Mr. Merdle heavily, and might be dogged, as you are at present without screaming, returned Mrs. Merdle. That's very true. If you wish to know the complaint I make against you, it is, in so many plain words— that you really ought not to go out into society unless you can accommodate yourself to society mr merdle so twisting his hands into what hair he had upon his head that he seemed to lift himself up by it as he started out of his chair cried "'Why, in the name of all the infernal powers, Mrs. Myrtle, who does more for society than I do? "'Do you see these premises, Mrs. Myrtle? Do you see this furniture, Mrs. Myrtle? "'Do you look in the glass and see yourself, Mrs. Myrtle? "'Do you know the cost of all this, and who it's all provided for? "'And yet will you tell me that I oughtn't to go into society? "'I who shower money upon it in this way? "'I who might always be said to uh, to, to, to harness myself to a watering cart for—' "'full of money, and go about saturating society every day of my life.' "'Pray, don't be violent, Mr. Myrtle,' said Mrs. Myrtle. "'Violent?' said Mr. Myrtle. "'You are enough to make me desperate. "'You don't know half of what I do to accommodate society. "'You don't know anything of the sacrifices I make for it. "'I know,' returned Mrs. Myrtle, "'that you receive the best in the land.' "'I know that you move in the whole society of the country, and I believe I know—indeed, not to make any ridiculous pretense about it, I know, I know—who sustains you in it, Mr. Merdle? "'Mrs. Merdle, retorted that gentleman, wiping his dull red and yellow face. "'I know that as well as you do. If you were not an ornament to society, and if I was not a benefactor to society, you and I would never have come together.' when i say a benefactor to it i mean a person who provides it with all sorts of expensive things to eat and drink and look at but to tell me that i am not fit for it after all i have done for it after all i have done for it repeated mr merdle with a wild emphasis that made his wife lift up her eyelids after all all to tell me i've no right to mix with it after all is a pretty reward i say answered Mrs. Merdle, composedly, that you ought to make yourself fit for it, by being more dégagée, and less preoccupied. There is a positive vulgarity in carrying your business affairs about with you, as you do. "'How do I carry them about, Mrs. Merdle?' asked Mr. Merdle. "'How do you carry them about?' said Mrs. Merdle. "'Look at yourself in the glass.' Mr. Merdle involuntarily turned his eyes in the direction of the nearest mirror, and asked, with a slow determination of his turbid blood, to his temples, whether a man was to be called to account for his digestion. "'You have a physician,' said Mrs. Myrtle. "'He does me no good,' said Mr. Merdle. Mrs. Merdle changed her ground. "'Besides,' said she, "'your digestion is nonsense. I don't speak of your digestion.' "'I speak of your manner.' "'Mrs. Merdle,' returned her husband, "'I look to you for that. "'You supply manner, and I supply money.' "'I don't expect you,' said Mrs. Merdle, "'reposing easily among her cushions, "'to captivate people. "'I don't want you to take any trouble upon yourself, "'or try to be fascinating. "'I simply request you to care about nothing.' seem to care about nothing, as everybody else does.' "'Do I ever say I care about anything?' asked Mr. Merdle. "'Say—no. Nobody would attend to you if you did. But you show it.' "'Show what? What do I show?' demanded Mr. Merdle hurriedly. "'I have already told you. You show that you carry your business cares and projects about, instead of leaving them in the city.' "'or ever else they belong to,' said Mrs. Merdle, "'or seeming to. Seeming would be quite enough. "'I ask no more. "'Whereas you couldn't be more occupied with your day's calculations and combinations "'than you habitually show yourself to be, if you were a carpenter?' "'A carpenter?' repeated Mr. Merdle, checking something like a groan. "'I shouldn't so much mind being a carpenter, Mrs. Merdle.' and my complaint is pursued the lady disregarding the low remark that it is not the tone of society and that you ought to correct it mr merdle if you have any doubt of my judgment ask even edmund sparkler the door of the room had opened and mrs merdle now surveyed the head of her son through her glass edmund we want to hear, mr sparkler who had merely put in his head, and looked round the room without entering, as if he were searching the house for that young lady with no nonsense about her, upon this followed up his head with his body, and stood before them, to whom, in a few easy words, adapted to his capacity, Mrs. Merdle stated the question at issue. The young gentleman, after anxiously feeling his shirt-collar, as if it were his pulse, and he were hypochondriacal, observed that he had heard it noticed by the fellows. "'Edmund Sparkler has heard it noticed,' said Mrs. Myrtle, with languid triumph. "'Why, no doubt everybody has heard it noticed,' which in truth was no unreasonable inference, seeing that Mr. Sparkler would probably be the last person, in any assemblage of the human species, to receive an impression from anything that passed in his presence. "'And Edmund Sparkler will tell you, I dare say,' said mrs merdle waving her favourite hand towards her husband how he has heard it noticed i couldn't said mr sparkler after feeling his pulses before couldn't undertake to say what led to it cause memory desperate loose but being in company with the brother of a "'Deuced, fine gal, well-educated, too, with no begod nonsense about her, at the period alluded to—' "'There, never mind the sister,' remarked Mrs. Merdle, a little impatiently, "'what did the brother say?' "'Didn't say a word, ma'am,' answered Mr. Sparkler, "'as silent a feller as myself, equally hard up for a remark. "'Somebody said something.' returned Mrs. Merdle. Never mind who it was. I assure you I don't in the least, said Mr. Sparkler. But tell us what it was. Mr. Sparkler referred to his pulse again, and put himself through some severe mental discipline before he replied, Fellows referring to my governor, expression not my own, occasionally compliment my governor in a very handsome way, on being immensely rich and knowing—perfect phenomenon of buyer and banker and that—but say the shop sits heavily on him—say he carried the shop about on his back, rather like Jew-clothesman, with too much business.' "'Which,' said Mrs. Merdle, rising with her floating drapery about her, "'is exactly my complaint. Edmund, give me your arm upstairs.' Mr. Merdle, left alone to meditate on a better confirmation of himself to society, looked out of nine windows in succession, and appeared to see nine wastes of space. When he had thus entertained himself, he went downstairs, and looked intently at all the carpets on the ground floor, and then came upstairs again, and looked intently at all the carpets on the first floor, as if they were gloomy depths in unison with his oppressed soul. Through all the rooms he wandered, "'as he always did, like the last person on earth "'who had any business to approach them. "'Let Mrs. Merdle announce, with all her might, "'that she was at home ever so many nights in a season. "'She could not announce more widely and unmistakably "'that Mr. Merdle did that he was never at home. "'At last he met the chief butler, "'the sight of which splendid retainer always finished him. "'Extinguished by this great creature, "'he sneaked to his dressing-room, and there remained shut up, until he rode out to dinner, with Mrs. Merdle in her own handsome chariot. At dinner he was envied and flattered as a being of might, was treasuried, barred, and bishoped as much as he would, and an hour after midnight came home alone, and being instantly put out again in his own hall, like a rushlight, by the chief butler, went sighing to bed. End of Book One Chapter 33